Please open your Bibles to the great book of Acts that records for us the first church history. We're in the middle of chapter 4, verses 36 through chapter 5, verse 11. Acts 4, 36 is where we begin our reading. Please read along as I read and allow God to speak to you this day. If you don't have a Bible, you can look on with somebody else. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, tell me, whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Last time we began looking at this frightful text to remind us the Lord our God is no tame little kitty cat. He is a roaring lion and he is to be treated that way. God cannot be managed. God cannot be manipulated. God cannot be fooled. He demands the highest reference, reverence that our souls are able to muster. Here we learn, I think, from this text, the central lesson, and it's this. The Holy Spirit will deal decisively with sin in His church, and He'll do it so that all the rest of us will have awe of Him. Our outline focused on the actions of the Holy Spirit, and we backed up into chapter 4 to see those actions. Two actions are seen in this same community of believers, this Jerusalem church. The first action is that the Holy Spirit Himself produced beautiful fruit, beautiful fruit. We saw that all the way back in chapter 4, even further back than what we read with the example of this mutual care that they had in the church for one another. And then they brought forth this wonderful example, Barnabas. He was an example of what was going on. He sold his land. He gave everything that he sold to the church. He was, a, he was so well-loved. He had a nickname uh, by the apostles. He gave generously. And this is what the Holy Spirit produces. The Holy Spirit was in this man's life in a great way. He was full of the Holy Spirit, as we read later in the book of Acts. And he came and he demonstrated tangible and mutual love for Christ and for others. We know the Holy Spirit is doing this action through Barnabas. We know the Holy Spirit is the one who is pushing all of this and developing all of this and producing all of this fruit. We know the fruit of the Holy Spirit is is love, joy, peace. So we know the Holy Spirit gets the credit and the glory for all of this, right? If you need a verse to sort of back that up, it would be Romans 5 and verse 5. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given us. Love comes from God, 1 John says. The Holy Spirit gives it, and then it flows out to others. Someone's not a loving person. They're not even a Christian. And there are a lot of people talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Barnabas walked the walk. Love comes from God. It comes from the Spirit of God. It's agape love. It's beautiful. And when you see a display of that in mutuality in a congregation, that's a beautiful act of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, this book, Acts, sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. Others have said it's better to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And this is an act of the Holy Spirit. Love 
is the Spirit's product. The second action we also started last time is the Holy Spirit exposes ugly sin in a congregation. That's in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And we just started this last time. We saw this ugly sin in this infamous couple. And we saw the Holy Spirit start his exposure with the husband. Peter asked four questions of Ananias. And then uh, rather than really waiting for an answer because he knew the answers, he provided, Peter provided his own conclusion to the questions. The first question and the main question is in verse 3. Look at it. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back, pilfer back, some of the price of the land? Ananias kept for himself part of the price of the land that he sold. That's okay, but he did it while acting like he was giving the entire thing in the presence of the apostles, in the presence of the work of the Holy Spirit, in the presence of the whole community. It was deceit at the heart and center of the community. And Peter knew that. Peter became aware of the deceit, probably through some prophetic insight provided by the Holy Spirit himself. So the Spirit uses Peter to expose Ananias' hypocrisy to everybody. And he also exposes the work of Satan that's going on behind the scenes who is able to penetrate and find a willing partner in Satan's work to carry that out inside the church. We We mentioned last time that Satan is relentless in his opposition to God and to his truth And we also said Satan actually wants to go to church on Sundays because he wants to find someone to work his havoc among and through. He doesn't come to worship God. And so Satan filled Ananias' heart with a lie. And Peter knew that it was worse than lying to men. It was worse than lying to the apostles. It was a lie to who? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit works in the church. The Holy Spirit produced the church. The Holy Spirit indwells the church. This is what we're doing here on Sundays. It's not just about seats and bulletins and announcements and a pulpit. The Holy Spirit is here as He is in every true gospel preaching church. And people need to be aware of that. This couple was not. It was a lie to the Holy Spirit. All of us must realize that everything that we do is done in the holy presence of God. So Peter went on to his second question, and it's a rhetorical question. Look at verse 4. This is kind of where we pick up from last time. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Yes, it was his. He did not have to sell it. Remember we said this is not socialism. No one was required to do this. This certainly wasn't government-driven socialism. There was still the respect of property rights. Peter acknowledged there's God-given property rights. He even says so right here. It was not wrong for Ananias to own it. It was not wrong for him to sell it. It was not wrong for him to keep the money for himself. He could just have easily have said, I'm not as committed as the rest of you. I would like to give some of the portion, but not all of it. I hope one day to become like Barnabas is. But he decided not to say that. He decided to act like Barnabas when he wasn't. He held up a pretense. He acted as if God was not really somebody he had to deal with because he was lying in the actual context of God's church. What was going on in his head? It had to be he was not factoring into his actions God. That's how unbelievers live every day, right? There is no fear of God before their eyes, it says of the fool in the Old Testament. In fact, if you just glance down at verse 9, Peter says this sin was putting the Spirit of God to the test, testing Him. I think that's an insight into their thinking. This couple did really think they were going to get away with this. They did. So Peter continues the interrogation, the third question. And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Again, the answer is yes. Anywhere along the line, Ananias could have stopped his march towards expressing this deceit. He could have stopped here. He could have stopped there. He could have stopped there, but he continued with his action. Even after he sold the property and the money was in his hands, it was under his control. That word is exousia. It means authority or power or jurisdiction, if you like. It's a word that indicates, again, God respects property rights of individuals. Ananias owned it. It wasn't anybody else's. Ananias had plenty of opportunity to reconsider. He could have looked at it and said, I'm going to keep this. 
Instead, he and his charlatan wife concocted this covert plan and followed through with it to the bitter end. And I do mean bitter. Notice the fourth and the fifth question. I'm sorry, the the fourth and final question. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Isn't it interesting that he says Satan filled your heart, but he also says that he conceived the deed. Both are working together. Do you see that? You, uh, you conceived this plan in your heart. Conceived is the Greek term tithemi. It means actually to put or to place something in there or to appoint something in there. So it's the idea that he thought of it and he kind of put it in there in his own heart. You didn't tell anybody else about it. You kept it in your heart where no one else can read. The only one that knew was his wife. By the way, again, that's a vivid insight into how Satan works in our thinking. We want to know, is these, are these my thoughts or, or are they Satan's thoughts? How about both? How about sometimes both? That's how Satan works. He finds someone and he knows the direction in which their life is and he fills their heart in a certain way, but they like those thoughts and they place them there. They accept those thoughts for themselves. Satan can be the one who instigates it with temptation, but the person has to take it and realize, I like this thought. Maybe they're not even aware it's from Satan at first, but I like that thought. I treasure that thought, and I put that there in my heart. Rather than the Word of God being treasured in my heart that I might not sin against God, I've treasured the thoughts of the devil. And so when we think the devil's thoughts, he gets the glory. Well, Peter pinpoints the source of the problem. It's the human heart. The human heart is also depraved. The human heart is an instrument Satan can use because it is a deceived heart. So many people today say, follow your heart, trust in your own heart, and all the rest of that. But the problem with that is the human heart is not neutral. The human heart is not good. The human heart is corrupted. Our birth from the family of Adam has given all of us, regardless of our ethnic background, a fallen nature. We're all sinners by nature. We were born in sin. We express sin naturally. We enjoy the environment of sin. That's what we're born into. Some enjoy this expression of sin. Others enjoy this expression of sin. But what's common to everybody, whether it's pride or whether it's self-indulgence or whatever the expression of sin, it all comes from a nature that loves sin. And some people want to know, why don't I feel like I'm in this environment of sin? And the answer is because it's the same reason why a fish never feels wet. That's their environment. That's all they've ever known. Sin is natural to them. It's their way of thinking. They love it. They express it. They live for it. And that's the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart, the human heart, is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The Bible says, let God be found true, though every man be found a what? A liar. Every man is a liar. And the man who says he's not a liar lied right there. Ecclesiastes 9.3, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Not much of a great description for them, is it? Matthew 15.9, our Lord Jesus taught, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. If you're going to deal with indwelling sin, you've got to deal with your thoughts. You've got to deal with your heart. You have to have a way of guarding your heart. You have to take that seriously and cooperating with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in order to overcome sinful patterns in your life. Please note that even with a new heart, even with a new life in Christ, we have to keep watch over our heart. You can start a lie, and the lie will start down deep inside of you, and nobody else will know it, and you'll treasure that lie. You'll try to get past your parents. You'll try to get past your teachers. You'll try to get past your wife. You'll try to get past your husband. You'll try to get past the elders of the church, not tell your small group, not tell your boss, and and you concoct that lie, and it's in there that you conceive it, and you pour water on it, you fertilize it, and let it grow. And though God is usually patient, And God does not usually make an example out of every sinner like these guys. He will sooner or later, hear my words, He will sooner or later bring your sin and my sin into the light. He will. Everybody then will see it. Everybody then will hear of it. And it will be ugly. That's why you, you should bring it out into the open now. 
before he does. That's called confession. Find the person you need to confess to. Find the group you need to confess to. Confess it. Bring it out into the open. This past month, I've been this way. This past quarter, I've been this way. I've been harboring these jealous thoughts. I was looking at the internet. Whatever it is, bring your sin out into the open before God does. He will. Isn't that part of why we have each other? Isn't that why we have small groups? Are you part of a small group? Do you have a part of people to go talk to, to confess your sins to? Do you have a prayer group, ladies, men? Do you join one of our tables on on Saturday mornings? Do you have a place to express with other believers, this is what's going on in my... If you're not confessing your sin to anyone, chances are you're you're harboring sin in your heart. You're not telling anybody. God will bring it out. If you hold your evil secrets in and continue on your path... It will not be good for you. I can guarantee that. Now, some have debated whether Ananias was a true believer or not. We know that God can cause true believers in the church to be put to death for some grievous sin. We have an example of severe chastisement all the way unto death in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as they abused the Lord's Supper. But the persistence of this lie and the utter hypocrisy in this couple's life leads many interpreters, myself included, to believe this couple was not truly born again, that Satan had indeed filled their hearts because they were willing for so long and that God decided to make them an example to all the rest in an act of judgment. There are both saved people and unsaved people as members of local churches. We call that the visible church. Even Jesus acknowledged that was going to happen when he taught the parable of the dragnet. He said the kingdom of God is like a dragnet, goes along the bottom, scoops up all kinds of fish. You pull it in, you see what you have in the hall. Some of the fish are good for eating, some that you want to throw back, right? That's how the local church is. A lot of, some churches are almost all unbelievers. Some are maybe 50-50. Others may just have a few unbelievers in them. But every local church has unbelievers in it. I believe that's what we're seeing here, that Satan got hold of and tried to use in a destructive kind of way. Even the indictment at the end by Peter's extremely strong. You have not lied to men, but lied to God. I mean, he could have said, you're such a fool. You lied to God. How can you lie to one who knows everything? And you missed the whole point of what's been happening in the church here since Christ ascended, Peter saying to Ananias. You diminished the Almighty. You thought you were so clever you'd get away from it. His whole thinking about God is off. That is a sin against God. Obviously, that immediately indicates that the Holy Spirit is God Himself. Did you catch that? The Holy Spirit is not some power that surrounds God, not some oozing wind that flows out from God. The Holy Spirit is God himself. He is a he, not an it. And so lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as God the Father is God. Indeed, The deity of the Holy Spirit is attested by multiple scriptures. You can write some of these down. In Matthew 28, 19, the Trinitarian formula, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, notice singular, of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One name, three names. How do you get that? Onama is singular, name. Yet it's followed by the list of three names. Three names are one name. Holy Spirit is grouped in there. He is God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So He is the Spirit of the Lord, and He is the Lord. He's God. He has the title of God. Hebrews 9, 14, the Holy Spirit is designated the eternal Spirit. We know that only God is truly eternal with no beginning and no end. He's called the Spirit of glory in 1 Peter 4, 15. And nobody can display the fullness of God's glory other than God Himself. He is called the spirit of life in Romans 8, 2, and nobody can give life despite all of the sci-fi things that are going on these days. Nobody can give life but God alone. Even the Holy Spirit, as He worked, it testifies that He did and performed the works only God could do. The Holy Spirit created this planet. It says so in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and then God said, you actually have the Trinity right there, the voice of God being the Word of God, being Christ, God the Father speaking, initiating, and the Spirit of God enacting and carrying out that plan. The Holy Spirit 
works in the miracle of salvation, not, in re, not, in, not just in creation, but in the new creation. Not just the original creation, but the being born again. We call that regeneration. He's the one who causes us to be born again, and that's God. Jesus said we're born of the Spirit, John chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. Revealing the truth of God is God's prerogative alone, and yet it says in 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Holy Spirit reveals God. Indeed, what the Spirit says, God says. You can compare texts, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 9, compare that with Acts 28.25, and you see what God says the Spirit says, one and the same. And the church is the temple of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells inside the church, Ephesians 2.22, Romans 8, 9, and 10. And here also, add to all of that, Peter makes it so clear that the early church understood the Holy Spirit was God when he said, when you lied to the Holy Spirit, you did not lie to men, you lied to God. Okay, so what kind of a fool attempts to lie to a being who knows everything? I mean, think about that. You ever had that teacher, that elementary school teacher, and you couldn't get away with anything in the classroom? And you're like, that teacher has eyes in the back of her head. Now she sees everything. You know, you're like, how does she always see that? How does she always know? You can't get away with anything. Well, God does actually have eyes all the way around. He does actually see all things. Psalm 94, 7 and 8. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? You have to give people basic biology lessons. Who made your eyeballs, God? Then don't you think he can see? He possesses omniscience also, 1 Corinthians 2.10. It says the Holy Spirit searches all things. Wouldn't that be a great search engine to have something that searches absolutely all knowledge in the entire universe? Well, guess who does that? The Holy Spirit. He even searches there, it says, the deep things of God. Whatever the deep and secret things are that are buried in the recesses of the deepest part of God, locked away way back in there in his mind, the Holy Spirit searches those corners as well. He's God. What kind of a fool tries to lie to someone who exists everywhere in the universe at the same time? Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Where's the the farthest part of the sea? Someone said, that's Point Nemo. Farthest part of the sea is Point Nemo. Where is that? That's the point on the globe farthest away from any land. It's somewhere in the South Pacific, somewhere 1,000 miles, I think, uh, west of Galapagos, way down there. Even at that spot, the Holy Spirit's there. So if you ever, you know, get on a raft and you drift way out there, you know the Holy Spirit is there. Buried in a cave somewhere, Holy Spirit is there, right? Up on the moon, still counts. Holy Spirit is there. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Mystery of the Holy Spirit, writes this, the Holy Spirit is everywhere. He is omnipresent, ubiquitous. Again, such attributes are attributes that belong to the being of God and are not shared by creatures. Not even angels, spiritual beings that they are, have the ability to be present at more than one place at the same time. Although angels, including the fallen angel Satan, are spirits, they are finite spirits. They remain bound by space and time. They belong to the order of creatures. No creature is omnipresent, end quote. And the Spirit is no mindless, impersonal power of God either, for He is called a He in many locations. John 16, verse 13 says, when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Robert Gramacchi, in his book, The Holy Spirit, writes about the error that Ananias and Sapphira exhibited here. He said, Ananias and Sapphira lied against both human persons and the divine person of the Holy Spirit. Lying is a sin against people. We don't lie to inanimate objects or plants or animals. We lie to persons. 
and persons lie to us, end quote. Indeed, did you know in Hebrews 10, 29, the Holy Spirit can be insulted, insulted. So Ananias was completely exposed by the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent spirit of the living God living and working inside of the church. And what is it that happened? Verse 5, and as he, Ananias, heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He died instantly, on the spot, in front of the entire church. The church he lied to. As an act of the Holy Spirit, he lied to. Rather than gaining the applause of men, oh, look at this man, look what he's giving to the church, he was thrust down and received the basis reputation of that entire community. No one is more hated than a traitor, and there was no worse name in the early church than Judas. But next to being a traitor, the worst is a hypocrite, and this name was alongside there. And so the Holy Spirit gave proof that he was indeed in their midst. He proved that Ananias had seriously miscalculated, and his sins were exposed. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 24 The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them. Some people walk into the room and they just smell like sin. They look like sin. They don't seem to be trying to hide any sin. So here comes a sinner. There he is. But then he goes on to say, but the sins of others appear later. They try to act like they're not, but sure enough, it catches up with them, doesn't it? I like to say that sin runs faster than any of us can run. You try to run, and you're sinning, and you look back, because you'll have to be looking back. You'll have to be looking back over your shoulder all the time, because sin is coming, and guess what? He's faster than you, and he's catching up, and that's how you have to live your life. You have to run harder, run harder, twist and turn and try to hide, but he's coming, and he makes those turns and twists very fast, and sooner or later, he's going to catch you. Some have speculated that Ananias died of shock, of cardiac arrest. Some speculate he was so struck with overwhelming guilt and remorse that his heart just stopped. The conviction hit him so hard and fast, knowing in that split second all of this folly, this calculation, who who knows how long he'd been calculating it, was all now going to be exposed, that he just died. That may have happened. We don't need to look for a natural cause in a text like this. The timing of God's prophetic statement and the instant death of the sinner speaks to God striking him down immediately in his own judgment. The reader of Acts is to interpret this as an act of God, not an act of nature. It resulted in fear in all those who heard it. They got the message. This was not an anomaly. This was not, oh, poor Ananias, he had a bad heart. The Spirit of God laid bare the motive of this man's heart and then decided to remove his life in an act of judgment. God, who gave life in the first place, made a decision to remove the life that He gave. God has the right to give life. God has the right to take life. We do not have the right to take life. Ananias was given the death penalty for lying to the Holy Spirit. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about God here? Are you mad at God? How harsh God was here? Do you think uh, God should have been more patient with him, shown him a little more grace? Do you think that the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament? Like so many poorly taught these days? Did you think God wouldn't do an Old Testament-like judgment in the New Testament? Sin is always a serious matter to God. It's not always a serious matter to us, unfortunately. But it is always a serious matter to God. God's action here is not out of harmony with His action in His judgments in other places in Scripture and down through human history. And listen, God's judgments are never wrong. Never. Psalm 19.9, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. The one who is wrong here is not God but Ananias. Anyone who sympathizes with Ananias, anyone who uses this to say what a monster God is, 
are themselves lost. They stole glory from God. Do you see how easily wicked men take a blessed and holy truth and twist it and blame God for their own sin? Isn't this what happens in Revelation in the end times when God is pouring out His judgments upon the world in Revelation and it says, rather than the people lifting up their eyes and saying, we've sinned, God, please stop the judgments, they curse God for the judgments. How dare He do this to us? Even after God has been patient, they blame Him for not giving more. God's patience, though it is great, has an ending point. And God's patience was never designed to help us to become bold in sin. That's what Ananias thought. I'm going to become bold in my sin. God's patience is there to lead sinners to what? Repentance. That's Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He's patient with you so you'll realize he's been so patient with me, I think I'm being such a fool, I'm going to turn around and come back to God. And in case you think the punishment did not fit the crime in this instance, understand that the worst sins, the worst sins are not the sins we do to one another, but the sins that are directly against the person of God. What is the greatest commandment in all the Bible? Not to love each other, but to love the Lord our God with all our heart, right? Where do the Ten Commandments start? With thou shalt not murder? No, that's number five or six. It starts with you'll have no other gods before me, right? Sins against God's person are the worst. A man becomes ungodly before he becomes unrighteous. This man lied to the Holy Spirit of God, and that deserved the death penalty. May every mouth be closed, and all the world become accountable to God. Shut your mouths. Speak not against the Lord in His judgments, for He is right. Do you remember Aaron when his sons were consumed by fire? It says there, and Aaron kept his mouth shut because he knew it was right. His sons had sinned against God and God burned them to a crisp. Anger at God for his judgments is no intelligent response. The intelligent response is fear. Say, I'm supposed to fear God? Yes, you're supposed to fear God. Psalm 101, verse 7. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. He doesn't like liars. He's going to eliminate them all. Malachi, chapter 1, verse 14. Cursed be the cheat who who has a male in his flock and vows it, that is, vows it to God in a sacrifice, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. He has the best lamb, and he says, I vow this to the Lord. And everyone goes, ooh, he's vowing his best animal to the Lord. But then on offering day, he offers the worst. God says, cursed be that cheat. And then he goes on, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Hebrews 10, 29, how much severe punishment do you think a person will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Yes, 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 fear is the right response. Notice the end of verse 5, and great fear, great fear came over all who heard of it. That includes people in church. A holy hush. That's the proper response. He who dwells in the church will be honored. That church got that message. Pretty striking message. Someone died at the front in a church service. Boom. By the way, three hours, that lets you know how long the church services were. God was honored there, I bet. Book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The Spirit of God will deal with sin in his church. Sometimes he just removes people. He just takes them away. They don't want to be in a church that is going to talk about sin. They don't want their sin exposed. They know where their heart is and they just decide, even though they've made their membership covenant, they lied about that. Every time they stand up and give their covenant, they know they're lying. And when it comes time to sin, rather than dealing with it, they just like, well, where did so-and-so go? Can't find them anywhere. Call them, can't get a response. Sometimes you come to me and say, what happened to member so-and-so? I don't know. We tried. Verse six, the young men got up and covered him up and after carrying him out, they buried him. Remember that burials were usually done on the very same day among the Jews. They wanted to keep their land clean, but this was rushed even for that. In John chapter 19, verse 20, it says, Jesus' body also was taken down immediately from the cross. It was wrapped immediately. It was buried immediately. Even though they had to come back with the spices, they buried it immediately. The Jews cared for the body because unlike the pagans who burned the body, they believed, as Scripture teaches, in the goodness of the human body and in the bodily resurrection of the body. And now we come to the second half. The Spirit exposes the sin of Ananias' wife, Sapphira. Verses seven through nine, let's start there. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours and his wife came in not knowing what had happened and Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. So the three-hour interval really is not explained. We don't know what that was about. It could be the ongoing worship service. It could be other things. Why Sapphira had not already known what happened to her husband. We're not really told that either. Perhaps she arrived looking for her husband. Maybe she thought something went wrong. She knew of the plan. Whatever her thoughts, it is now her time to face the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit. Please notice, by the way, before we get into the judgment here, the balance. God dealt with a woman just as he dealt with a man. Just like the man, the woman is addressed. Just like the man, the woman must give an account for herself. Just like the man, the woman was judged. Equal time, equal attention, tragically, equal judgment. Sapphira was every bit a member of the church as her husband was. Her husband was not asked to answer for her sins. She stood in that holy assembly alone in this. She gave an account for what she knew and what she did alone. For this, women were treated with equal dignity in the early church, even though the Jews and the Romans and the Greeks did not treat their women that way. They were treated with equal dignity, but with equal dignity comes equal responsibility. Each disciple of Jesus, male or female, is responsible for his or her actions. That is why in Christianity, each person must choose to enter the water of baptism themselves. The man must enter into the water of baptism for himself. The woman must enter for himself, declaring their own statement, I have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and make their own personal confession. But I also want you to notice that God did deal with the man first, because God recognizes men not as better than women, but as leaders of their home. This is how God dealt with the first man and the first woman in the Garden of Eden. Adam was made first by God's design. Eve was made from Adam by God's design. Eve was brought to Adam. Adam then named Eve. Adam led Eve. And all of that was before sin. And all of that was good. And when they sinned in Genesis 3, God called for the man first to give an account for his family, give an explanation. Only when he dealt with a man was the woman then addressed. And God judged and pronounced the judgment on the man first. And after the man, the woman was indeed dealt with there as well. So even here, we clearly see women are different than men. They're to be treated differently than men. That difference is God-designed. That difference is wise. That difference is good. That is a difference that is to be preserved. It's not a difference that is to be hated. It's not a difference that's to be hidden by the way we dress. 
It's to be accentuated because it brings glory to God who invented male and female. But please notice women are also equal with men, equal in value from the time of creation and equal in honor in the assembly of the righteous. And so the lead apostle, Peter, directly addresses this woman. Verse 9, then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Peter now joins Sapphira's sin to Ananias's. He connects her sin to his. They both did this together. They both put the Spirit of God to the test. They both agreed to do this. The book Outstanding Women of the Bible gives a little bit of insight about what might have been going on in Sapphira's heart here. I'd like to read it. For three hours, Sapphira remained at her home. We are not told why she failed to accompany her husband. The voice of conscience may have caused her to delay, but at last, she also came. She had no premonition in her heart of the terrible fruit which her godless agreement with Ananias had already yielded. As she entered the room where the believers were assembled, all eyes were turned toward her. Her husband had just been carried out dead, dying with a lie upon his lips. Sapphira, no doubt, thought that the looks of the assembled congregation were looks of recognition and acknowledgement for the great deed of love which Ananias had just performed. There in full view laid the money at the feet of the apostles, which only a short time before her husband had placed there. He goes on, Oh, that the appearance of this money might arouse her to a consciousness of her sin and might have crushed her heart and repentance in the dust of the earth. But just the opposite happened. Peter met her with the question, tell me, whether you sold the land for so much? Why this question? Was ever such a question asked of a disciple? And what was the meaning of the earnestness upon Peter's countenance and of his question? And where was Ananias? Ought he not also to be here? Certainly it was a moment that should have turned the heart of Sapphira. But she saw nothing. She noticed nothing. She anticipated nothing. The veil of Satan clouded her eyes. Without a thought, the answer came from her lips, yes, for so much. And as she lied so boldly and recklessly to God and the congregation, Peter cried out in great distress, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? She had her opportunity. She had multiple opportunities. We have opportunities to get things right. God's patient with us. I'm not trying to say you're going to be struck down by your sin, but you could be. It could be illness. It could be some other way. God has to get your attention, but he, he's given you time. He's given you time to ponder. This is time. Every time we're at the Lord's Supper, that's time. Every morning, your devotion time, that's time to deal with the things you're willfully not obeying God with, and you know about them. Then you look at the end of verse 9. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Her life ended in a tragedy also. The young men who buried her husband would bury her too, side by side, in eternal humiliation and degradation. The book, All the Women of the Bible, adds this note. A wife cannot always influence her husband in what is right, but she can try. We have no record that Sapphira even tried. Her husband committed evil entirely with her knowledge, and it would also seem with her support, if not at her instigation. A husband and a wife are a team. As a team, you can spur one another on to love and good deeds, or you can invite Satan into your marriage by deceit, and you can be used as instruments of unrighteousness. Sapphira decided she would become a partner with her husband in greed. Wives, you are not supposed to follow your husbands when they are following a path towards sin. I want to make this as clear as I can to you. You should not follow them when they're disobedient to the Word of God. 
When it says, wives, submit to your husbands, it doesn't mean when they're disobeying Christ and following after Satan's ways. You should not help them cover up their disobedience. Otherwise, God joins you to his sin. Biblically, wifely submission does not mean cooperating with your man in doing wrong or covering wrong up. Abigail in the Old Testament knew that her husband was a scoundrel and a fool. In fact, his name meant fool. So she decided that she had to either side with her husband, the fool, or side with God and God's anointed one, King David. Or David wasn't king yet, but he was anointed by Samuel. She chose to honor the Lord, even if it brought shame to her husband. And she is held up as a noble example in the Old Testament. I can tell you this, that the elders have seen again and again a man be stubborn in this congregation, not want to be taught, not want to deal with sin, not want to deal with something, and the elders are trying to be patient with that man and deal with it, and then he decides to leave and the wife just follows. That's not right. That's not right at all. You say, but I've got to submit to my husband, but he's, he's rebelling against God's word. He's not dealing with what he needs to deal with. You're supposed to obey God first. It's not right to follow your husband when he's sinning. You just help him to sin. You bring folly on your own home. Now you've joined yourself to that sin. And who's going to correct you now? And of course, with sin and folly, that just ruins the home in the long run. And we've seen some of those homes become divorced after they left because they didn't want to deal with anything. It's wrong. Please notice verse 10, how wrong it was. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last And the young men came in and found her dead. She died quickly there, notice. They both died very fast. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Ladies, be sure your sins will find you out also. You can fool the pastors. You can fool the whole congregation. Can never, ever fool God. The Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit sees. The Holy Spirit knows. If you do not turn from your sin, the chastening hand of God may come down heavily upon you as well. And I don't wish that for you. I don't think any of the leaders do. Please notice the outcome, because this is the whole point, verse 11. When you see something repeated in a passage like this, it shows that's a pretty important point. Verse 11, and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things, believer and unbeliever. Obviously, God doesn't strike down everyone who lies to the Holy Spirit in every age. He can. He may still choose to do this. It's his sovereign choice. He still sees all. He still hates sin. But he can deal with sin in a multiple of ways. There are ways that his chastening hand can come upon you, and that is something I know he does. I've experienced it in my own life. I I know that you can't hide sin from God. I know that. I know that from the time, first year that I was saved, way back when I was 18 and 19 years old. You cannot run from God. can't even try. Remember, there was a guy in the Bible that did try that. What was his name again? Jonah. Remember what happened to him? Swallowed by a great fish and spit up on the land. God will get you. God will get you. He will chase you down. You can't run from him. You can't hide from him. I'm not saying that because I want your money. It's just true. Take your sin and run to Spain. He's there. Take your sin and run to India. He's there. Take your sin and run to South Africa. He's there. Right? We get a little bit of a glimpse of how judgment will be on the final judgment day when people stand before God. Here it was Peter and the apostles presumably behind Peter. But there will be Christ sitting on his judgment throne because the Father has given all judgment to the Son so that all will honor and fear the Son just as they honor God the Father, right? John chapter 5. And there people will be brought before him. Did you notice Ananias and Sapphira, they, they get no opportunity to give a defense. The truth is the truth is the truth. They speak. The judgment is given. 
It's over. There's no defense attorney. There's no plea bargain. Every mouth will be shut. Every mouth will be closed. And the man and woman will be judged. And those big, strong, fearsome angels will grab the sinner by the arm and bring them to the edge of the lake of fire and throw them into the lake of fire. People laugh about hell now. I'll go to hell. I'll enjoy it with my buddies. No one will jump into the lake of fire. They will be cast into the lake of fire by beings they cannot control. They won't even get a chance to give defense. That's why it's so wonderful now. It's the time of grace, yes? Now is the time of forgiveness, abundant patience. Don't turn God's patience into an opportunity to get away with sin. You won't. The more you sin, young people, listen to this. The more you sin, the more you're going to continue to sin. The harder it's going to be for you to change from that later. You will have habits and patterns. Your heart will get hard. The Spirit of God will stop wooing you and drawing you, and you'll be confirmed and locked into your sin. That's why you need to change now. Let this be a forewarning. Let this be a foretaste of the wrath to come. Long before it happens, search your hearts. If you can't even do that, ask the Spirit of God, search my heart and know me, and bring it all out into the open before he does. I close with James 4, verses 7 through 10. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. We cast ourselves upon your mercy, Father. Each one of us is a sinner, and each one depends on your grace. Thank you for your judgments. They are true and righteous, and we agree with them. And we will sing of your judgments for all eternity. We ask, Father, you have mercy on some. And help us all to do a a better and more humble job of confessing our sin to each other, that we might be more holy instruments in your hand. Lord, from, from myself to the elders and the deacons and our women leaders, our small group leaders, Lord, help us not to be pretentious and be proud, but humble in your presence. We ask it in Christ's name as we come to you and your table. Amen.